Hi, this is uh, Robert, and you're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. And on with me is Kat Kaylin, and we're joined by a special guest, Colin McLaughlin. And Colin, you're joining us from, I guess it's Edinburgh, is that correct? Yeah, I'm in Edinburgh, a couple of Scotland, God's country. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, no doubt about it. Actually, we go there uh, often, or at least I used to go on business to Livingston, and uh, which is not too far up the road. Used to stay downtown in Edinburgh. Had a blast there. My family went over on a family vacation here only a couple years ago. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, I love Edinburgh. And you've got everything here. The outdoors, you've got the... The history and the architecture, Edinburgh's great. And I know Livingston uh, well as well. The only thing we're missing is the weather. What is the weather there today? Raining? You know, today's been a good day. Um, it's It's been uh, sort of 10, 12 degrees. We haven't had any rain or hailstones. But yesterday we had all four seasons in one day. You know, that was what was so crazy is I would go on business to Livingston and those guys would say, well, if you don't like the weather, just stick around another 30 minutes or an hour and it'll change. And there was no doubt about it. I would walk into the building. We had a manufacturing facility there, a biotech type facility, and I would walk into the building and it would be beautiful and sunny. And I swear, I walk back out and there's snow falling. And it's cold as all get out and windy. And I'm like, what the heck is going on around here? And it happens quite frequently, I understand it, because every time I was there, I'd have crappy weather. I never had really good weather while I was there. Yeah, it's crazy. And you can't dress for that. You've got to dress for all four seasons. So it's a layer system. So, you know, I, I pack my suntan cream. I've got a T-shirt on and then I've got 15 <laughs> layers that I take with me as well. Uh, that's great. So I want to try to introduce you somewhat to the American side of things because they're not as familiar with you as those over in the UK, especially because of the show that you did. And we'll get into that a little bit. But I want to get into your military career primarily at this point because I, I heard that you joined at the age of 15. Now, that's well before you can even drive a car. So did you have to get parental consent in order to go in at 15? Yeah, so uh, like a lot of people who joined the military, I had a bit of a troubled childhood. And uh, my mum kind of dragged me along to the careers office and uh, sat the tick test. And there was a picture on the wall, I always remember. The guy said, you can join whatever you like. And there was a guy hanging off a radar dish in Hong Kong, and it looked so exotic. I said, I'm going to be that guy. And the guy said, no, nah, it's a year's waiting list and then two years training. And my mum said, no way. He's out the house by the time he's 16. So I signed up, and I joined two weeks later, and I had to get special permission to join. Oh, my gosh. That is a crazy story. Isn't it crazy how the brochures and pamphlets and everything always kind of attract you to, you know, whatever it is? So you end up joining the Royal Scots, which, as I understand it now, became the Royal Regiment of Scotland here recently? Yeah, that's right. So the Royal Scots are like an Edinburgh and Lothian-based local infantry regiment, and uh, I joined them in 1989. And I stayed with them until about uh, 1998, uh, and then I did selection to 2-2 SES. When you were in the Royal Scots, what was the rank that you ended up achieving before you went over to... Uh... So, yeah, so I was I was a sergeant before I went uh, across to Hereford, and then your rank keeps going to a certain extent. So even when I was in Special Forces, I was a warrant officer class two back in the, in the Royal Scots. Okay. Oh, okay. So it's separate then. It's, it's not one of the same. Yeah, so what happens is everyone joins as a trooper to the SES and your rank keeps going in your old unit up until maybe around the seven-year point and then we do what's called permanent CADA and that's when you kind of move lock, stock and barrel across to the Special Forces group. I take it that's only when Special Forces decides that they want you to stay on more permanently. 
Yeah, although it's not really a probation period, it's more in terms of uh, administration and paperwork. Oh, okay. um, because what might happen is you might you might get to a stage where if you leave after four or five years, your pension and your old unit is worth more than your special forces one. But around about the six-year point, the special forces one overtakes it because the special forces pay is worth more. That is crazy. It's confusing. Very confusing. <laughs> yeah. Really we're, confusing. We're, we're always more confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me when I think about, you know, especially what you did in special forces as it compares to more conventional forces, how that retirement would make any difference. Because, you know, in, in our military, as you know it, you go on to special forces, it's the same, same as a conventional in terms of retirement, benefits, the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. And for, for a lot of ways, that makes it a lot easier and, and clean cut. But, um, you know, we're the Brits. We need our own way. We need to drive on the left and do all this crazy stuff so <laughs> no one else can copy us. <laughs> oh, I love it. So is your warrant officer then very much like a warrant officer in our military, where it's not an officer yet not enlisted, kind of that middle yeah, road? exactly. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. So you go warrant officer, class two, class one, and then you're commissioned and you become an officer if you stay in long term. So exactly the same. Okay. Well, no, in the at least on our side of it, the warrant officers never become commissioned unless they absolutely want to. They go warrant one, two, three, four, five, and ah, she's got more stages. Okay. Yeah. And they're they're just specific. You have to normally to get your warrant, you have to be in that specialty. What is it for two years, and then you're E five or sergeant, and then you yeah. go to the off. Well, walks is warrant officer candidate school, and then your specialty is. I guess related to your your job isn't that's how it works for warrant because we don't yeah. we don't just transition right over. Yeah, and that's quite uh, and I guess that that specialty part of it is is another area where the kind of US and UK divide a little bit because uh, so similar to so something like a Delta Force medic um, though those guys go and do quite a long intensive course and those guys can do just about almost anything from making tropical medicine to deliver babies whereas we kind of do a six weeks anatomy and physiology then we do four weeks in an A&E theater and that's pretty much us and we'll do a refresher once a year so we're really intensive on trauma but we're not like a specialist and and that's the same for like gunners demolitions delta force and and quite a lot of the ussf when they're when they've got a specialty they really do specialize on that like they they know it inside out whereas for us we're more generalist Gotcha. So, but your your training though is still about a year long. Is that correct? Yeah. So selection itself six months, and it's broken into uh, different phases. So jungle phase, parachute, and you go on the run, the hills phase. Uh, but six months later, that's you. You're kind of badge. You get the berry and the bell, and you're officially you know SES. And then for about the next two years, I would say you go through a cycle, and so you do four kind of six month segments doing different parts of the job. And you're constantly training. You're constantly doing courses. So, yeah, I think it costs about a million pounds to train a, a, an SES soldier. Wow, that's a lot. So now when you were in Special Forces, you spent, what, a total of 10 years, 12 years doing that? Yeah, I was about 10 years in uh, SES. You know, I know you've got a book called The Pilgrim that you're going to be probably covering a lot of this information within it. But there was a period of time when you were actually taken captive and held for a period of time and had to have been a pretty scary period for you yeah and i guess i guess for a lot of uh i guess for a lot of soldiers you know, there might be a period when you'd spend either being you know doing hostage uh, release or hostage negotiations 
Um, or you might even be a hostage. And I've been uh, fortunate or unfortunate to have been all three during during my career. And yeah, towards the tail end, I was taken uh, taken hostage in um, Iraq, just uh, just outside Basra. As I understand it, it was actually someone that was on, I guess it was the Iraqi forces that was actually saved you or helped you along with the some other commandos that came in. Yeah, so 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 in my case, we were uh, we were taken kind of ambushed at a police checkpoint, and the police were sort of embedded with the militia. They were the same people, and uh, I was taken um, to the police station. They tried to get us in an unmarked car. Um, we managed to fight and not get in the back of it. Then we were put in the police station. They set up the video cameras. They were ready to behead us, and then a tank burst through the the walls, and our own guys managed to come and and rescue us at the kind of 11th hour. But there was a massive mob outside. It was all over Sky News and stuff. People remember a guy climbing out a tank and he was on fire and stuff. So it was uh, it was quite high profile. And there was two of us. And I, I left shortly after that. Isn't it incredible, though, you know, just not, I'm not saying I've had the same experience at all, but with working and training and trying to aid these countries, you're pretty much working against yourselves because they're they're so embedded with one another. And and I know plenty of missions where we went out looking for high value targets, and the guys we were training, taking them out there, they were you know tipping them off with information. And it's so dangerous. And your story right there is just absolutely incredible. And I'm I'm very happy that you made it out of there. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I think yeah, you're right. We we've had a lot of cases of kind of we would call them blue on blues, but it would be kind of. Iraqi or Afghani forces who have turned on 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 our forces, or or they're working. You know, there might be police during the day and militia at night, and yeah, that, that's all too common. And I guess when it's embedded in society, it makes that type of conflict very very complex and hard to, you know, hard to solve. Yeah, I mean, I can see how there would be a lot of uh, conflict there, and especially not knowing who you're going to trust when you were put in that environment. I mean, you had a bunch of guys that certainly probably weren't looking out for your best interest. And then, as I understand it, someone, as you heard a voice, you yelled out and uh, got their attention, and that's one of the things that may have helped you. But not knowing which one of those individuals are actually going to be on your side, you could have done that all along, and it could have still ended in a very bad situation. Well, that's what they say, too, is that the threat is is so serious because it's so unknown. And for them, their loyalty is nothing compared to, I'm sure, Scotland's or Americans to our troops. It's what what gets them is payment or the the threat that their family's going to be killed. So it can turn around in a second. So while you were taken captive, you had six mock executions. I mean, there was times there where, I mean, it, that must have been very difficult for you. It, were you married at that time frame? No, I wasn't married at that time. Um, yeah, and it's difficult. But weirdly, uh, that, it wasn't the mock executions time that I felt the most uh, scared, if you will, more more apprehensive that I was going to be killed. It was when it was when the mob lost control. So when I was when I was there in the corner of the room, you know, I'm stripped naked, I'm blindfolded, I'm handcuffed, I'm pressed against the wall, and when somebody was in charge and there was order, I actually felt safe. I felt like it wasn't if there was their purpose to kill me, they would have right there and then. Right. It was only it was only when they kind of 
argued with themselves and there was pushing and shoving and the odd fire, you know, round would go off. That's actually when I felt the most vulnerable because when it becomes that mob mentality, I think that's when sometimes you feel the most vulnerable. Well, people lose their grips too in that sort of case. When you see that there's structure, you're like, okay, I, I realize that I'm going to, I'm a, I'm a pawn in this situation and they're going to move me as they want. But like you said, when everybody starts to lose their head, yeah, I can see how you, you definitely would get a little apprehensive with what's going to happen. So were you, now were you the only one that was in, that had been held captive or were there others with you? Yeah, there was two of us and the guy that was with me, um, he, he was straight, straight finished selection and this was his first task. So really, uh, there was kind of two dimensions to it. I had my own life that I was, I was concerned about, but as commander of that whole operation, and having this guy next to me, I was always conscious that there was there was two of us, so I couldn't really make a break or anything on my own. I was leaving a guy behind, and you always had that in the back of your mind. Oh, most so definitely. You, oh, he, go ahead, Robert. You know, I was going to say because he actually worked for you. You he was under your leadership. Is that correct? Yeah. So that whole operation, I, I kind of led um, alongside MI6, um, and so. You know, I had I had three other guys that we used to do our kind of going out in the cars with, and uh, two guys had gone across the border in Kuwait, and it was just me and the other guy that were kind of driving from the Kuwaiti border back into Basra when this happened. Now, did he separate immediately after, like you did, or did he remain on? Uh, he 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 stayed in as as far as I know, and I think he's still in now. But um, what an experience to first join SF, and that's your first kind of that's your first rodeo. Yeah, no doubt. So, Colin, when you were um, when you were you all held in the same vicinity, and I guess having another well, I, it kind of changes my question because you were in charge, so you do have a sense of responsibility. But did you do you feel that like psychologically you found comfort in you know being there with him you know as a leader you always feel like well especially for me being out there with my troops it was that was more fulfilling but on a on a on that sense where your lives are at stake I mean did you find any sense of um I guess peace in that situation with having him there or being there for him um I I guess from I I guess from his perspective I think he might have found more peace from the fact that no and I was quite I was quite level-headed even during it and he probably took comfort from that I think from my own perspective, it, it probably isn't so much that I took peace from it, but it made things a whole lot more complicated and I had more things to think about. So perhaps in one situation, if I see a window open or I see a weapon in the corner, I think I can die for it. It actually may, it throws more more kind of spanners in the work, if you like. Yeah, mm -hmm. you've got more to think about. And, you know, I might get out of this. I might shoot a few guys and run out the door. But what about him? You, you know, and... I don't want to leave anybody to the wolves, so I think it gives an extra dimension to it. Yeah, especially with you taking the leadership role, so that's that's yeah. that's incredible. Now, <clears throat> when you got out of there, you went back for a time period off to the uh, back to the special forces as well. How long did you stay in afterwards? So yeah, and that, and that sort of thing, and we talk about um, some of the kind of post-trauma side of things. So uh, literally for me, I went back to Basra uh, when I got rescued. I went back to the palace, and the very next day, I was I was kicking doors in, and I was I was doing high-value targets in Baghdad. So yeah, in some ways that's good, and in other ways, you know that you you might not think that's the preferred option, but it, it certainly seemed to work for work for me. So I guess there wasn't really a structured PTSD analysis or anything like that that was ever done at that time frame. I'm hoping that they do it more now. Was there at yeah. that time frame? 
Yeah, I think I think they're getting better at recognising that. And I think for a lot of the things when it comes to veterans, I think we're always a step behind the US. Firstly, in terms of recognising our, our veterans and what they go through. And second, in terms of the kind of post-trauma, putting them into work, um, future career, that kind of thing. So in terms of this, yeah, I mean, hopefully you wouldn't have to do that nowadays. Hopefully there would be, a, and I believe there is, a more regimented way of dealing with post-traumatic incidents. For me, I uh, yeah, I was back up in Baghdad the next day. We were chasing high-value targets and stuff. And I think I came back down about a week later to Basra to do uh, an ID parade at that checkpoint to see if I could see any of the guys that were there that day. Did that give some kind of closure to it? Perhaps. Um, but from my side, if that had or hadn't happened, I don't think it would have, it would have made much difference to me. But I can see how it might offer for someone. Yeah, post-traumatic stress is something that we've talked about actually on this podcast. We had um, a show that we dedicated to it because it's something that a lot of veterans actually may not even recognize up front. It could hit them years later that they start realizing that some of the effects and the trauma are the reasons why they're feeling a certain way or acting a certain way and their behaviors and such and end up seeking help only to find out then that it might be more either TBI-related, you know, traumatic brain injury or PTSD. Yeah, and that's very topical in the UK right now. And we have a number of different uh, charities that are just starting to come out now. And there's been a lot of, obviously, work done. And a lot of that's come from the States as well in terms of treatment. And I think the, I think what the key thing is here is, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, it's different for everybody. Someone will get it right after the incident itself. Some may get it years later. They'll show different symptoms. And there'll be different ways of dealing with it for different people. What works for you might not work for me in terms of, of, of the cures and stuff like that. And there, But there's all kinds of good work come on that right at the minute. So you, you think, well, with your personal experience, because a lot of times, well, a lot of research that they're doing now is saying that, especially with special forces, is that they're – guys that are going straight back in the fight and not dealing with the issues or dealing with the loss of, of fellow soldiers or what have you is really detrimental to, I guess, the healing process and actually coping with the traumatic event. So, but with what you're saying is you going right back into Baghdad, now that was more beneficial for you instead of actually kind of compartmentalizing what had just happened to you. So... Do you think, like you said, each treatment is individual, but as far as your mindset now, how how do you think that affected you? Yeah, I, th I think certainly from my own, I, I wouldn't recommend going straight on to uh, operations, certainly not the next day, because I think, how, how do you know how that person's reacted? I could easily have reacted very badly to that. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's the reason why it hasn't affected me as much. I just think it may or may not have helped, um, but um, for my own part, I mean, I I always say, like, my, my childhood was quite bad, you know, being naked and being beaten up and locked in a room for days and not being fed and stuff, uh, beatings, unconscious, that, I'd been to that place before, and I think for anybody, if you've been to that place before and you can take yourself to that special place that you go, it, it helps. I wouldn't recommend it, but... It's, it's certainly, if, if somebody's been through that type of environment before, even if it's in training, um, it, it'll, it'll help. Yeah, I would have to say, because especially with conventional, they don't do a lot of, um, well, captive training, you know, they, or even just the, how to compartmentalize or where to put yourself. Whereas, you know, for you, you kind of 
it was kind of like an expected thing, but that you knew that you could handle. And, and I think there's always that sense, even with um, special ops guys and gals, is that you go through this training, but it, that's that's kind of what keeps you level-headed, is that you know that it's training. So to actually have, like you said, to have gone through it, even similar circumstances when you were a child, you kind of had, you were the person for that position at the time, which is sick to say, but, you know, it better on for you to deal with it than, you know, like you said, your younger guy that could maybe not have dealt with it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that um, I know that Delta go through some type of psychometric training as part of their um, uh, selection, if you will. We, we don't do that, but we do do things like, um, so as part of our selection, we'll do 36 hours of uh, constant, you know, under capture. So you're either in a stress position or you're interrogated, and there might be up to a dozen interrogations over that 36 hours. And that 36 hours of in the bag, which we call it, uh, it's quite intense. So when you come out the end of that, you've been tested to some degree, so it does it does give you some preparation. So you just had, that's all that you guys go through, is just the 36 hours you don't have in a, because the, the normal SEER school here, well, they, they teach you... Uh, evasion as well as tactics for survival um, out in the field but there the course is three weeks itself and then um, I know that Delta Force they actually have created their own more intense seer school so 36 hours I could I could see as being beneficial but definitely not not like three enough. weeks yeah 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 so we go on the run for a week and uh, we have our World War One uniform, and off we go. And that'll be either somewhere in Wales or Scotland. And you have to make a checkpoint at first light every morning. You'll cover something like 20 to 30 Ks every 24 hours. And then at the final checkpoint, after a week, you're kind of all herded up. And that's when the kind of interrogation starts. You're already kind of, you know, you've been on the run for a week. You're not, you know, you're pretty tired. You're run down. And then you'll do 36 hours. And during that 36 hours, you'll either be kind of, in a stress position on the floor with your kind of uh, hands behind or you'll be leaning against a wall or squatting and then uh, so they the rest put of you the in time. a prisoner of war camp makeup yeah. makeshift okay so it's yeah. very similar to what what the the course is down here i'm i don't know the details on what the tier 1 assets do but as far as the conventional army who they who normally are it's mostly for pilots so geared towards that guys that yeah. are ought to be uh, held captive so it's similar. Yeah, and I know that Delta, you know, the selection was obviously modeled on on the SES. You know, that uh, major came across and he did a study at Hereford and he sort of modeled it to some degree, obviously tailed, tailored it for the U.S. forces. But, you know, when we had different things like the foot and mouth crisis and stuff like that, we went across to, to the States and did the you know, the, the Delta selection, the aptitude phase and stuff in, um, is it Colorado or up in, the, up in the Rockies? We kind of did that part of it there. So they're, they're similar, albeit some of the training and specialist stuff is, is, is slightly different. Which is good because you guys need the best training, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you did, did you end up retiring or as we would call it, retiring through separation where you end up getting a pension or a benefit from it? Um, or did you leave before that time period where your eligibility was there? Yeah, so in the, in the British Army, we have kind of two periods, your 12-year point and your 22. And 22 is when you get a pension right away. So you leave it 40 or above, and that's you, you get your pension. 
if you leave after 12 years, you get like a half pension, but not until you're like 55 or 60. Um, and they're just starting to change that now. They might have already brought it in, but they're looking at an 18-year point now as, as some way of filling the gap. Now, when I left, that wasn't in place. So I'd done about 18 years, and um, I didn't qualify for the full pension. So I got a 12-year pension, which kicks in when I'm like 55. Gotcha. So when you separated, we go through a program transition a program and transition assistance program the army calls it the army of career and alumni program and i think they now have a different name like the warrior program or something like that nature does the british army or the british military have a transition assistance program that helps you with understanding that transition back how to communicate how to go on job interviews how to write your resume all those types of things this is a mandatory program that we send our troops through for about a week. Um, is there something similar to that that you ended up going through? Yeah, now traditionally this has been quite bad. So when I left about nine years ago or whatever, that, was, uh, that wasn't a very uh, well-structured or thought-out path. So they would open up a big book and say, here's some contacts, phone them, and uh, maybe you know a little bit of hand with writing your CV or, or something like that. That's changed slightly now and that what they do is that they give you what they call enhanced learning credits. So up till 10 years from when you leave, there's a pot and you can have three goes at it. So three of those years out of the 10, you can apply for a grant. Now when I left, that was a thousand pounds, so maybe like $1,500. And it was towards a course that qualified under the MOD, the Ministry of Defense rules. It could be anything like a plumbing course or it could be like a bodyguarding course. And you were able to dip, it, dip into this pot three times over, over the 10 years. I think they've raised the threshold of the enhanced learning credits now because they realize that that level doesn't quite meet any formal recognized qualification. It's almost like a kind of college certificate, maybe even a diploma level. So it wasn't really getting guys in the door and a lot of these guys were taking the money and just going and doing a bodyguard course and you know going out to Iraq and Afghanistan and doing what they'd always did just with a private security company sure for for me what i'd like to see is i'd like to see a longer lead in to the end of their career so more during your career so if i do a promotion course that equates to a civilian qualification if i do an instructor's course there's a civilian qualification as i'm about to leave I dip into what I would like to think is an apprenticeship. So a civilian company pays perhaps 50% uh, of your wages and the military will pay the other 50%. And away you go and you do maybe three months with a, you know, a, a legal firm or, a, you know, banking or, uh, you know, work on the roads, whatever it is you want to do. But it's, it's work experience. Because work experience, certainly in the UK, is far more valuable than any single qualification or your military experience. Now, the UK is getting on a par with the US in recognizing the value of veterans. I think when you talk about military veterans, that has a certain uh, respect in the US. Whereas in the UK, it didn't quite meet those levels. So when I leave with my little red shiny book that says I'm a fast runner and a good shot, that doesn't really cut it and your average 21 year old that has three years similar experience is going to get the job over me. So I think if I've got work experience in that, in that job and I've got a reference to go with it, I've got more chance in Civilian Street of getting a job. 
What about the um? Because I know now there's such a stereotype with vets in this in the states, especially since PTSD is not so. Uh, it's it's more recognized on the negative aspect on what instead of how the therapies that are upcoming. So, I mean, does does the UK have that stigma going on with hiring vets? Because I know now everyone thinks that if you hire a vet, then they're going to shoot everybody down. <laughs> so, Yeah, so we have a little bit of that. But our, uh, and again, we're going a little bit into politics here, but we don't have similar problems because we don't have as many weapons. Now, that's not to say that, you know, we don't have problems with veterans, with domestic violence, with drinking and alcohol, with a little bit of uh, violence on a smaller scale. I think if we had access to weapons on, on, the, on the levels they do in the States, maybe that, that stigma would be attached at the same level it is in the States. But it, no, we don't, we don't get it as much as what I imagine you might get it across there. You know, we have a really good program, though, when it comes to how they relate military experience to the private sector or to the business community, and that sounds like that's a real disconnect there. You know, they, they've done a really good job of trying to take the skills, match them, and show employers based on government regulations of, you know, like skill tech, uh, like schools or like jobs, that here's what a military person does. If they're a plumber, electrician, something like that in the military, well, that equates to this within the, the private sector. If you're an infantryman, then it equates to this within the private sector. And it may not fully qualify. You may still have to get some type of certification, like even a medic within the military may have to go and get an EMT certification when they get out, which is somewhat crazy. There still needs to be a bridge there where you can see that and not have to get that additional certification. But it sounds like it's even much more difficult for your veterans when they make that transition. They're almost starting the clock back over again. Yeah, and I think that that's refreshing to hear because that sounds very good. And I think that mapping from your skill sets to the, the civilian equivalents are a fantastic idea. I think there's a lot of things the U.S. do. Like, for example, because you do two-year posts and we only traditionally do six months posts in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, even when I was out there, they were, they were looking at initiatives like doing part of a degree while you're out in Iraq or Afghanistan. And I, I think that's tremendous because, you know, even if, it's, even if it's only half a degree, if you've got half of that in the bag already, it gives you that incentive to finish it and get a degree, whereas that would never happen in the, in the UK. Well, in the, in the U.S. military, I mean, we have 75% tuition assistance while you're in, and then when you get out, you're going to have what's called the GI Bill, and if it's post-9-11 GI Bill, I mean, it's pretty much going to pay for all of your education. It's it's totally different from what you were describing a moment yeah, ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm like in awe right now. I, just now yeah. Because, you, I mean, what the military, as far as like work ethic and the type of people that come out, I mean, now they, the states, they, their non-commissioned officer courses, they've actually rewritten them so that um, they're not so geared towards, I guess, the, the job or the, the army job that you have, but more towards leadership and writing and, you know, filling out paperwork and what have you, so that if you were to transfer that course, say your first non-commissioned officer course, you actually could get English credit or um, depending on your... Maybe MOS. up to two years of college. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're saying now that they actually want um, enlisted soldiers that they do get out of the military will have at least an associate's and have their prerequisites done. So um, just with their, their military experience. So for you saying that you're only getting, you know, out of 10 years... 
say three grand, uh, three years of you know, th- three thousand or three, three thousand yeah, yeah. or yeah. what, what have you. It's just it that is insane to me because that doesn't offer anything. That I mean, you especially with guys coming out of the military, and I'm sure you've seen it, especially with infantrymen. Like you said, like yeah, you're a good shot or you can run fast, but how does that translate to what you actually want to do with your life? And if you would like to be a lawyer, I mean, would that would that compensation actually be equivalent for you know your basic degree? And then you have you have guys that don't aren't making any money as it is, so. Yeah, it seems like night and day, and yeah, we we have all kinds of follow-on problems for that. So we have, for example, uh, a lot of uh, veterans who are homeless, and uh, we'll have a lot that go on to uh, drug and alcohol problems. Um, certainly, certainly trouble finding finding work and stuff like that. So there's a lot of uh, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of follow-on from that. We have we have quite a high suicide rate in veterans, and I know the US do as well. Um, uh, and yeah, so we 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 have all kinds of issues there. Well, so, just with the lack of you know treatment for, I mean, it kind of it kind of puts you know what the states is doing, especially with the guys transitioning out, to shame because what you know what we're offered and they're we're especially building on it now. And something that I've noticed is that vets, you know, nonprofits or profits are actually vet or veteran owned is helping other vets with PTSD and I'm sure if you've listened to the other podcasts you've seen that we've had a lot of guys on here that are our vets that have done amazing things for veterans but I mean especially you know we're all human psychologically we you know built very similar coming back from war not only coming out the transition is so difficult but you know for your like you said your suicide rate is so high because I, I can definitely see like not the transition and not knowing what you want to do with your life and coming away from that environment and not having anything to fall back on is just incredible. Like that, that's, that's just insane to me. Like you, you're a veteran, you should have your, you served your country and you should have all the opportunity to contribute to the civilian sector. And it just seems that that's not available to you. Yeah. And I think they're slowly recognizing it and you're seeing, um, you know, you're seeing these, these nonprofits and and different organizations that are, are growing up now because they recognize it because it's, 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 it's UK wide. There's so many issues with it that they recognize something has to be done. And it's, it's a pity that more is happening once people come out rather than trying to deal with it once people are in. So preparing them for, for when they leave. But, um, yeah, we're slowly getting there, but we see we see the issues on a, on almost a daily basis. I, I walk through Edinburgh, and as I come out the train station, there's normally a veteran at the top of the stairs, and I've been in quite a lot of the uh, veteran transition places in, in Edinburgh, and I'm ambassador for a number of charities as well, so I see it kind of firsthand. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a problem. So you made this transition, and all of a sudden. You're working, I guess, as I understand it, with uh, offshore oiling companies. Is that correct? And how was it that all of a sudden you got into the SAS Who Dares Wins, the the television reality show? How, how did you transition from soldier to you know the business community, and all of a sudden right back into now TV reality star? Yeah, I think uh, so. I was I was probably quite fortunate, and I did quite a lot of things when I left, different things. So even when I was a, so when I left, I did security work for uh, a security company looking after U.S. media, actually looking after NBC News, CNN, in uh, Baghdad and Afghanistan. And I saved up enough money to put myself through university, 
Um, and while I was at university, I did a number of internships at investment banks and uh, charity organizations, uh, management consultancies. And then following on from that, I went into HSE type work and uh, risk management type stuff with oil and gas. And it was during that time that I was, and I'd done a little bit of acting and extra work prior to that. And uh, I got approached to take part in the series. And one of the things that got me sold on the series were how committed they were that we would design the program as in what the selection for the candidates would be and how integral it would be to selection itself. A lot of these TV programs you probably know from, from your side of the water, they can be a bit more about TV and less about reality or more about the type of candidates that are on rather than the reality of what people are looking for. So that's what got me interested. And yeah, the, the, the series was a massive success. Well, one of the things that we find here in reality TV is the first season's usually really good. Maybe even the second season of reality TV. And then all of a sudden the producers decide, okay, we want to take this now to another level because we see that the interest is there. Now it's no longer reality. It's staged. You know, I mean, they've scripted everything. And so it just, it goes downhill from there. Yeah, that's right. And that, that was one of the beauties for me. And it might be one of the one of the dangers with this series. You know, you see something and then, you know, the second series is going to be a jungle. And, you know, you can almost feel there's a celebrity one coming or, you know, there'll be a, a female version. And without disrespect to females, we, we can't take females for SES selection because we have nowhere to recruit them from. And it's where kind of reality comes away from, from the selection process. Now, from my perspective... A female passes selection, she's good enough to go. It's as simple as that. But we just have a problem in where we recruit from because we don't have females in our parachute regiment, our marines, our kind of our infantry levels. So to to get you, that farm of females coming in through selection is more difficult. But uh, yeah, that's the problems with TV, and um, yeah, we'll see we'll see what happens. So with the those that are listening, this on you know American side. This is a TV reality show where you take contestants who decide that they want to see what it's like to go through SAS training, and you put them through as much intensity as you can within an eight-day period, as I understand it, which doesn't sound like a lot, but I'm sure you try to make it as intense as you can within the reality phase of that over that period of time. Yeah, so we, so we had 30 different candidates from different backgrounds. So we had MMA fighters, boxers, rugby players, ballet dancers. I mean, we had all sorts, the full spectrum on there. Um, we, Although we had eight days and it's a six-month course we're trying to replicate, we, like you say, we made it as intensive as we could. So it was, it was full on, but it wasn't so far from reality. So when we do things like, for example, the fan dance, which is a 24-kilometer uh, a hike up and down some of the highest hills in, in Wales with a pack on in four and a half hours. We did it exactly the same route with exactly the same weight, you know. So we tried to keep those uh, milestone tests the same during the period. But it, yeah, it would have been quite intensive for them. How many episodes did this run? Was it like a one episode per day of training, or did it? You know, How did you end up, or the producers, I guess, end up putting this into a show? Yeah, so we had eight days and it was squeezed into five kind of hour-long episodes. So they would have kind of almost been kind of almost two days per episode. And they were split into phases. So, you know, we had the kind of hills phase and we had the on-the-run phase and the interrogation phase and stuff like that. 
So I tried to see the show online, as a matter of fact, for whatever reason. I don't know if it was my computer, the cookie situation or something. It wouldn't accept it. So I wasn't able to watch the online version of it, which I did see the clips that they had on there of what it was like and such in the intensity. But in looking at the show, what did the contestants get out of it? When they went into it, did they feel like at the conclusion of that, that they took away something? Did they feel like... I'm sure they felt like they accomplished something, but was there more to that? Did you have to set up a prize, in other words, of, hey, at the end of eight days, if you survive this, you get X? Like some reality TV shows here in America, they end up trying to put a dangle a prize at the end of it, you know, $100,000, $1 million or something like that to get people to do it. Otherwise, people would think like, nah, I'm not doing that. You know, it's not worth my time. Yeah, I think I think Kat would agree with me that, that these things aren't about a prize at the end or, you know, money or anything because in reality when you pass these selections, you know, my, my ceremony, if you like, was just uh, the CEO walking in and handed me a berry and told me to report to Squadron and we wanted the TV series to be the similar. So there was no winners. Uh, in fact, there was no losers really. This was about who gets to the end and when you do get to the end, You've made it, and that's the only achievement that you need. And there was a, they, they'd done it, we shook their hands, and they walked out the gate. And I think that was important as well to the kind of ethos of the, of the program because that replicates reality. So with, with this show, now did it have, with the selection processes here, most of them you, you really can't dive into it because it's so OPSEC. Now with, with what your, your eight-day show, now did you breach any security or uh, I mean was that an issue when you decided that you were going to do it or is it different for the UK where it's an open book I can get on Google and find out everything day by day yeah it's a good question and, and as we we work with the MOD uh, disclosure cell all the way through it and before any whether it's television or you're going to write a book you have to go through what's called EPAW express prior authority and writing so you basically set out a letter saying what the project is and then if it's a book, you might have to submit a manuscript. And for this TV series, we had to send them what the five series would compose of and then what we would be, uh, what information we would be releasing. And really for the majority of it, you know, selections are kind of open book for us now. Sadly, we had some fatalities on selections. So um, under HSC, the coroner's court, that was all kind of open to the public. So selection for us is less of a secret now. It's what happens after. The only uh, probably um, exception to that rule is stuff like conduct after capture, escape and evasion, because similar to the US, we would have some procedures that we'd prefer not to be known. So that was the kind of only touchy subject that we came across that we had to play quite carefully. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. So do they, now that your candidates that are... The, the people that went through now are they just from the UK or how did you I mean how did you broadcast this hey we want people to do this and were people that actually went through selection did any of them want to actually go through your eight day process your eight day compressed six month selection process did you have any SF guys that wanted to do that or SES um, so we did uh, so we we were we made it obvious that we weren't going to take any ex-military, anybody that had served, these had to be civilians and uh, that's what they, that, you know, that's what they had to, they had to go through and um, we thought we would have more to do with the screening process and selection for it and with hindsight I can see why we didn't because there were people that were um, 
the sort of people that we wouldn't even, if it was a selection process, we wouldn't even entertain. Um, but for whatever reason, they were, you know, brought onto the. Now that made that made great TV, and actually, it was quite. I was about surprising. to say they probably did that because of great TV. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, and there might be, you know, a stereotype that we're looking for, you know, in terms of uh, selection. So this type of person, we don't want people with big egos. We don't want people who are doing it for the wrong reasons. So that. It was actually good in a way because these people came on and there was some surprises and that that probably wouldn't have been something that we would have allowed. Well, I mean, there's a lot of psychological or mental aspect to this over the physical. And I think so many people, when they think of, you know, special forces, they always think of these guys that look like bodybuilders or something when that's usually far from the truth. It's more of people who have the uh, physical ability to be able to carry a kid you know, do the types of things that you guys have to do in the rock uh, climbing, the jungles, and the different types of situations. But there's a mental component to this that I think that that's what the show really tried to hit on as well, is if you can go to that place, if you can find that you can go beyond what you thought was your limit, you have set your bar as to here, and you find out, actually, you can go way far beyond that. I think as a contestant, you've got to feel like you're you're taking away so much more than you would just in trying to take some kind of monetary or money from the show. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think the mental side, and can't probably agree, that it's far more important than the physical because your mental can sometimes overcome whatever physical state you're in, whereas the opposite is quite hard to do. And we found on the on the program, a lot of these big, massive gym queens would come on and they would just fold, whereas some of the smaller, wiry guys, I mean, I'm, I'm Mr. Average, you look at me and you, I won't even draw a second glance in the street, and that's deliberate. Those type of guys, maybe that have a bit more mental capacity, they, they, they'd surprise you, you know. Well, that's what I, I like to preach to, especially for women joining infantry now that it's open here, is that, you know, everybody wants to thump their chest that they can carry so much weight and go as far as possible. But, you know, we all, we all understand that that's a huge component to working in infantry and special operations, but going in with this mentality that you have, or having, you know, I'm a woman, hear me roar is going to defeat you more than the fact that you can ruck so far. And I, you know, I tell people all the time, it's like, it's you, you're looking for a soldier, regardless of gender, who can mentally put up with the you know the strenuous arena that they're going to be placed in and like you said like you can get these elite iron man you know badasses with huge egos in there but you you throw like a kitten in the mix and they crumble then you're, you're gonna have a problem so i i agree mentality is a huge your outlook is more important than your well it's not more more important i feel it's an equal weight but it, it definitely contributes to what you can actually do and how you think things through so definitely important and i think you know honestly is this show i'm robert you said this is going to be aired in the states no it's not not that i'm aware of at least in well it needs out. to be and they yeah. the women that are joining infantry especially like you said that there's no monetary component on what comes out of it that it's more for an individual accomplishment that the states really need to take hold on this because that's incredible if you were to ask a united states tv station to do something like this they'd be like well you what are they going to win? That's going to be the first thing that comes out because everybody expects something in return instead of just going out and doing something to prove it to themselves. And I think, you know, I think you should highlight that amongst all aspects. And I think it would really take a, a 
a hit over here because to show just the type of people that are actually going out there and doing this for no sort of show. Like, I think that's just amazing to me. So kudos to you on doing that, on not giving a prize, because it's more, if you can accomplish it yourself, that's so much more. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think uh, we'd all agree that nobody joins the military for, for monetary gain. It's, uh, it's a whole load of different reasons that you join the military. And I think this course, if it was to try and replicate that, it would have to have a similar end goal you're you're playing for pride and you're playing for personal development and you're doing it for you may not be doing it for your country the same way as you would with the military but you're certainly doing it for to travel a a, a journey which few other people um can say they have and i think that it both gives that person respect when they're finished and it also does, means that you don't attract the wrong type because there's not some prize at the end of it well, and even just the selection process, like you said, having, you know, tell somebody who has a huge ego that can lift and do all this stuff, like, hey, you are not, you are not qualified because of this reason, A, B, or C, would really put in their godlike perspective of themselves down to a normal level, which then if you've, you figure like that alone is going to have the domino effect of contributing that mentality to society. So either way, people who are rejected or accepted and actually go through it, it really does, it has a huge effect on what, on how people view themselves and how they need to treat others. Yeah, and that's a good point about not, you know, getting so much gain regardless of the fact you've passed or lasted to the end. We, we had a guy called John Calloway. He was a typical gym queen. His, his, his figure was like a statue. And he he was rejected. He didn't make it. And uh, bizarrely, on the on the mental side, which had come post post the physical escape and evasion, and for me, he kind of travelled the furthest in terms of his personal development. Even though he didn't make it to the end, when he first came, he was ego driven, gym bunny. He was at the top of his game in his own head. But the fact that he failed something, the fact that there was other people that were stronger, fitter, better than him actually gave him that little bit of humility and made him kind of redirected him, which if you think over the space of six or seven days, having that whole personality transplant, you wouldn't get that anywhere else. There's not many places you take these people and you sit them down for a week and a week later they come out the other side and they're, you know, they're totally focused in a different direction. And I think that's one of the great things that that kind of military ethos and spirit and all the different characteristics come with us. I think that's what it offers. Well, I just think that you you contributing this to, you know, the civilian population where they, you know, even if they're a patriot or they are all for their military, to actually let somebody, you know, in an eight-day span, like you said, completely transform into a complete a different individual, like that's incredible. And it definitely shows the type of the service members that are in special operations going across, you know, like a year, you said you're training six months long, you know, just what the type of mentality you have to have and the type of person that is actually representing your country on the front line. So, you know, you, you broadcasting this is, is so beneficial to the military. And I really, I really think in the long run, it's going to, it's going to change the the view and the mentality of our service members. And I, and I hope that for your country alone, that, 
it does open like these individuals deserve more for what they've done. So I, I, I keep my fingers crossed for you. Yeah, I, th- I think shows like this provide a window through which the public can peer in and see what some of our, not just special forces, but just general forces go through, some of the commitments they have to make, some of the what they put on the line, even just time away from their families, that that provides that window for people just to get a glimpse of, of what they put on the line. We always, uh, of course, with our show being Mentors for Military, we always like to try to give back and that's really what this podcast is all about is trying to teach our veterans how to be more successful whether it's personally or professionally what is some of the advice that you've learned along the way that you could really give to the veterans that are separating today as to maybe how to prepare themselves more we're talking about mentally how to make that transition what are some of the advice i think that you could give to the veterans that are separating i think that uh i, I think that that self-belief that confidence that no matter what the person next to you who's in that office environment that uh, different work environment you have so so many unique skills that that type of experience is hard to get whether it's teamwork leadership determination you know uh, all that mental robustness you have all that to offer and I've found that you know I did an internship with an investment bank, and then I went off to you know uh, a charity organisation, and then I did kind of HSC. I've done so many different things, and I think that we're so adaptable as soldiers because we're used to being lifted like pawns from one environment and put in another, and we have to adapt and we have to just become you know streamlined with where we're going, and we're really good at doing that. And I don't think we have. Sometimes we don't recognise how good we are at that because. We're almost chameleons in terms of different environments, and we have so much to offer. Even simple things like communications and people skills, which are so important today, I think, uh, yeah, we should we we should try and kind of harness that. Yeah, we try to do a lot of help in terms of teaching them that networking is important. We had a guest on a few weeks back that says your network is your net worth. You know, is if you understand the the importance of that in a person like you, I mean, Colin, you were out there, as you'd mentioned, during your internships, meeting people, whether it was going to university, uh, in your job, you were always trying to connect and reach with individuals that could you could touch their lives or they could touch yours in some way and progressing forward within the business. Yeah, I think if you if you look at if you imagine how many people there are in the military and how many people there are that have left the military or have some military connection, that network and if you just think about the UK, you know, and its own little piece, that's a massive network to tap into. And there's certainly lots of different uh you know, military networking uh events, reunions, uh military parades where you bump into people. There's online forums. There's a lot of these things on Facebook, on LinkedIn, uh, events on Twitter. You know, even even things like the podcast that you guys put out. All all those different networks to tie into. And if that's in the UK, I would imagine in the states, that's just magnified. You know, a hundredfold. So what's up next for Colin? I know that you've got a book coming out, The Pilgrim, that's going to be due out November seventeenth, two thousand sixteen. Can you yeah, tell us so a little that, bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, so I've got a number of different things I'm doing at the minute, and we talked about all you know how adaptive we are. So I have the book, which is which is uh, out now. That's available right now on pre-order on Amazon, The Pilgrim. 
Um, I also, um, we wrote a book on the series as well, which contains a lot of kind of motivational teamwork leadership type stuff. Um, I also do risk management on a kind of smaller project level. I do some public speaking, so I go around events and I talk on a variety of different things and uh, can range from motivational to teamwork to big corporates in terms of how they achieve their, their goals and elite performance type stuff. Um, I also do motion capture with video games, so the Grand Theft Auto series, I, I work on that. And also do a lot with charity work as well. Um, so I'm an ambassador of a number of different charities here. So one of the things interesting that we're going to do at the end of the year is a UK Special Forces Veterans against US Special Forces Veterans. And that will be around Remembrance Day, around uh, that weekend in November down here. So I'll have to get myself back into shape for that one. <laughs> have you already selected the individuals from the USSF? Or how do they go about applying for that? Because I know we have a lot of listeners uh, that come from the special forces community. Yeah, so yeah, we'd be we'd be interested in, in guys. Uh, so we're trying to match up guys that are the same kind of age, experience, weights, and um, so on Facebook you'll see a, a born fearless uh, boxing event page. If you go on that, you'll see a guy Phil Campion who does a lot of the commentating on uh, Sky across here. He's kind of organising it. Um, I've been invited along. Uh, if there's any guys listening out there, if they're a crusty old uh, 42 year old weighing about 80 kilograms, just uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, bring them on. It'll be great. And it's all for charity. So yeah, it's good. No, that'll be really good. And I know that you're really big with two big charities, the Pilgrim Bandits and uh, the Lee Rigby Foundation. Definitely want to give a shout out to them and the work that they're doing. And I know there's others that you're probably involved into. I know there's Rock to Recovery uh, and some others that probably being been engaged with. We're trying to, as well, align ourselves with a lot of those organizations because it's like you mentioned before, veterans helping veterans. And regardless of the country, we find that we go through very similar situations, a little bit different in terms of maybe how our governments end up providing benefits or those types of things. But when you talk about the real issues and the real core problems and such, it ends up being somewhat a similar language that we all speak to one another. Absolutely. I mean, you guys are brothers and sisters across the war. You see the same things. We, you know, we're a part of the coalition. We, um, we have the same ethos, the same mindset. We, you know, the, the, just, just recently, you know, Obama was saying that, you know, that, that bond is unlike any other uh, across the world. And, and, uh, and I firmly believe that having fought alongside you guys, you know, it's, uh, you, you, you don't have to, it's not like you go to Iraq and Afghanistan and you're in a patrol and you're kind of always questioning. You know those guys, are their heart's in it, their, their mind's in it, and, and you're, you're side by side. So, yeah, those are, those, those are some of my fondest days. Well, we're definitely going to have to have you back on here because I can tell you that Mike and Rudy are really going to be bummed that they missed this. I already talked to them earlier today, and, and unfortunately, they weren't able to be here. But if you're open to it, we'd love to have you come back on. We'll talk about mentoring of you know our military again, since we're talking about it now, that how it reaches on both sides of the water here. We can help one another and help our veterans out there. Colin, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you're a busy guy. Thank you. Um, appreciate you doing this, and uh, we'll be in touch with you here in the near future. Yeah, proud to be part of it, and good to meet you guys. Please be sure to follow us at iTunes, leave a rating, and your comments. And if you don't have an Apple product, no worries. You can follow us at SoundCloud, download the app, and if you're on Twitter, be sure to follow us there at Mentors, the number 4 M-I-L.